Well, we've made it through 21 chapters. I will say this. Um, If all things go according to plan, as it were, uh, now that we've hit this particular juncture in Genesis, um, I do believe that the pace of our study through Genesis will pick up at this point because as we get to Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph, we're kind of, uh, we are going to be going through other of the patriarchs' lives. Um, but there's a few more uh, really, really awesome big picture ideas. The same big picture ideas that we've been talking about consistently. But in the narratives of these lives of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, we're going to see very uh, plainly and we're, we're fur, far enough away and getting further away from the creation account and things like the flood, and we've pretty well established up to this point that man's track record, the longer we go through Genesis, man's track record is uh, sin, sin, and, and more sin. And we, yes, we do see accounts of, of faithfulness and obedience, but thus far through Genesis, God has made it very, very plain that mankind, on the whole, is sinful. And rebellious. And God has made it very, very plain through these uh, chapters in Genesis thus far that He is immaculately, perfectly faithful. Uh, He is gracious. He is just. He is loving. He is kind. But He is also uh, a God of wrath. Uh, He is a just God. Um, And so at this point, Isaac has been born. He is on the scene. Uh, He has been there for uh, some time. At this point in the life of Abraham and now the life of Isaac as well. And so we pick pick it up in verse 1 of Genesis 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac. Isaac, of course, being the promised son to Abraham and Sarah. And although Ishmael had come along uh, through Abraham and Sarah trying to take matters into their own hand, God constantly reassured them, I will give you and Sarah a son. And God, of course, made good on that promise. So Isaac is the very promised son to Abraham. And we read that after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. And laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham. My father. He said here I am my son. He said behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said God will provide for himself the lamb. For a burnt offering my son. And so they went both of them together. 
when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So at this point, again, Isaac being the very promised son, and you can imagine the, the great joy and excitement and the thrill that it was for Abraham uh, and Sarah to finally have their own son. Again, you've heard me say this a million times. I'm going to briefly mention this again. The birth of Isaac itself is quite miraculous. Sarah who was past the age of childbearing, and even when she was in the age of childbearing, she was a barren woman. Yet she conceives. Abraham, who was old enough that it was said that Abraham, you know, as good as dead, <laughs> was able to father this child, a hundred years old, to father Isaac. And he is the child of promise. What promise? The promise that God gave to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That God would make Abraham the father of a great nation. And that through that, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Isaac being that specific promised son. Because again, Abraham and Sarah came up with their own little plan. They brought Hagar into the mix. And Abraham and Hagar bore Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the promised son. He was not to be the heir or the recipient of the promises. And there was even a second account later on where Abraham said to God again, through Ishmael, you know, let Ishmael be the one. And God said, No, I will give to you a son. And at this point, after all of this waiting, after all of the missteps, all of the uh, all of the times that maybe Abraham and Sarah lacked faith, and even after the times of Abraham laughing at being told the promise of God. After Sarah laughed upon hearing the promise of God that, that it would be her and Abraham who conceived. After all of this, they finally received their child. And now it is said that God says to Abraham, Go take Isaac, make a sacrifice. Isaac himself being the sacrifice. I wonder how many of us, if, if we were honest, we would, we would all have to admit that even as a believer, we've had moments in our lives of very weak, shallow, lacking faith where we've doubted the promises of God. We, we've lacked faith in His Word. We've, we've even lacked faith that He is in control of all things. Yeah, we say He's in control, but then certain, uh, certain events happen in our lives and we find ourselves acting and thinking in a way as if God really is in control, really isn't in control. And so we try to take things into our, our own hands and try to do things our own way. And we've seen that in the life of Abraham and Sarah. But what is amazing in this account 
We don't see any hesitation. We don't see any stumbling. We don't see any arguing. We don't see any questioning from Abraham. Now at this point, when you could say this is like the ultimate test of Abraham's faith, he was scared that Pharaoh was going to take his life. And so he told Sarah, don't say that you're my wife. Say you're my sister. He was scared that Abimelech would take his life. And so he told Sarah, tell him that we're not married. You're just my sister. He was fearful for his life then. He, he, he went back and forth with God. No, let it be Ishmael. And then, he, then laughing at the promise. And Sarah, the same thing, laughing at the promise. And so you see these, these moments in Abraham's life where there was some hesitation or some reservation. There was some fear. There was some lack of faith. But yet, here in this moment, when it seems that the stakes are almost the highest, you would say, when God says, Take your own son whom you love. And may he be as a sacrifice. Kill him upon the altar. Abraham gathers to the supplies. Gathers his men. And they go. No hesitation. No questioning God. Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. God gives the instruction. And Abraham gets everything together. And sets off for the mountain. So back to us for a moment. If you say, well, I wonder, I wonder why those moments where I have lacked faith and where I have kind of fallen flat on my face and I've doubted the promises of God or I've just completely doubted God at all and not trusted in His Word and I've stumbled and I've, I've fallen and I've, oh, I've had such weak faith over and over again. We read a story like this and it... It becomes easy for us to say, oh, that I could have that faith. Oh, that I could just have faith that didn't question God, that just trusted God in all circumstances. No matter what God was asking of me, no matter what God was leading me to do, oh, that I could have the type of faith that just said, here I am, and then I was obedient, and I trusted God, and I had faith in God. I wish that I could have a faith like that. And we kind of become infatuated with just this single event and we forget about the person that we're reading about. If you look at Abraham's life, he didn't always operate this way. So we look at our lives and we say, why would God allow us to have those moments where we fall flat on our face? Why would God allow us to have those moments where we lack faith? Because, you know, however you want to word it, but you would say, deep down in my heart, deep down, and, and I know that I want to have that type of faith. I want to trust God like that, but I, oh, I just fall so short sometimes, and I, I hate that. I don't want to have a weak faith. I don't, I don't want to have a lacking faith. I want to have a full faith and full confidence in God. But how do I get there? Well, part of the getting there includes all of the falling on our face and lacking faith and doubting God and not trusting in the promises of God and trying to take matters into our own hands. Because what happened each and every time that we read, and I'm sure there was lots of events that weren't recorded for us, but just in the events that we do have recorded, what happened each and every time Abraham doubted or questioned or laughed or, or anything like that? What happened when Abraham and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands? Did that in any way, shape, or form change God's plan and what God was doing at any time? No. And so every time Abraham doubted, every time Abraham lacked faith, every time Abraham questioned, every time Abraham laughed 
at what he heard from God. It was proven to Abraham over and over again from God, I am faithful. I will accomplish what I said that I will accomplish. I will fulfill what I have promised you. I will do what I have said that I will do. And so Abraham, to use a very simplistic illustration here, you could look at it, Abraham had his ups and downs, right? If we were to look at the trajectory of Abraham's life, as far as faith goes, we would say, well, up, down, this was a low spot. Uh, but then, well, let's, let's just start at the beginning. Abraham got up and he went to the land. He, made, he started his trek on the way to the land that God would show him, but then he doubted. Well, but then, I mean, he left Egypt and then, and then things were going pretty well again. But then him and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hand. But, but then, even then, Ishmael was taken care of. Hagar was taken care of. And God still was going to fulfill his promises. So they just kept going. But then, oh, there was another up, down, up, down. What does God's faithfulness, faithfulness look like through the story? It's like this. Steady. Perfect. And if we were to examine our own lives, if we were to examine our own faith, we would have to say the same is true in our lives. Though we have had moment after moment after moment of failure, of doubt, of fear, of anxiety, of lack of faith, of you fill in the blank. We say, throughout all of those moments where I fell short, where I doubted God, where I didn't trust God, where I didn't even feel like I belonged to God, all of those moments, that's me, but God was faithful. He was steadfast. He was unchanging. He was immovable. He was a rock, a firm foundation. And hopefully we'd be able to say, you know what, as I have grown as a believer, the, the, longer, the longer that I am His, and the more I grow in my faith, I could say, well, although I still have moments where I stumble and fall, one thing I have learned, my confidence in God has grown because every time I fail, I, learned, I had to relearn, God is still God. He is faithful. He is unchanging. He is steadfast. He is ever present. He is ever the same. And so now, as a result of having gone through those ups and downs, and going through those trials of life, now at this point, hopefully all of us can say, with where we're at right now in our lives, in this moment, our confidence and our faith in God is stronger. We have a greater confidence in God than we had a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, because all of the trials and tribulations that happened in the midst of that week, month, year reminded us we are weak, He is strong. We may lack faith, we may doubt, He is ever the same. And there may be a greater trial or greater test of faith upcoming in our life. None of us knows what is in store. And if we think, oh, that I could have a faith like Abraham's faith where he just says, okay, and he gathers his supplies and he goes. That's the kind of faith that I want. We're not going to 
We're not going to gain that faith by focusing on ourselves and our shortcomings and how many times we've fallen short. As you think about those things, as you're tempted to think about your shortcomings and to focus on those, focus rather on God's faithfulness. What God is accomplishing. God who says, I work all things together for good for those who love me and are called according to my purposes. God who says, rejoice in every trial and tribulation. God who says that, that we're not tempted um, uh, above that which we're able. That He has provided a way of escape. That there's no temptation overtaken us that is not common to man. Think about the promises of God. Think about the faithfulness of God. If our eyes and if our hearts are set upon Him, if our eyes and hearts are set on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, as Paul says in Colossians, if, if we are focused upon Him, that alone will bolster our faith. The more that we consider Him the object of our faith. But if we are focused on ourselves and our, well, I've never been strong enough to do this and I've never really done well here and I don't know what I would do in this situation, then there's a much greater chance that you'll stumble and you'll fall flat on your face again. So instead, focus upon God and His faithfulness and His promises. What's amazing to round out this little section of the sermon, here we are told... He gathered his supplies and he went. And we see here that he did tell his men. He said, me and the boy, we're going to go over here and we're going to worship. Building an altar, making a sacrifice to God, that is worship. But he says, and we will come again to you. And it would seem that he's talking about both. Because he says, I and the boy will go and worship and come again to you. You say, that's insane. Did, did Abraham really think that he was going to go and kill his son upon the altar and that they were both going to come back? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Not only did Abraham say, Okay, and gather the supply. This was Abraham's mindset. Okay. God has asked me to sacrifice my son. I'm legitimately going to do this thing that God has asked me to do. And when it is done, God will give him back to me. And we will return. Now, at this point in the juncture, I'll insert this. For non-believers, and even for probably a good many number of Christians, this particular narrative is the point of great contention. For the non-believer, they say, you believe in a God who would ask somebody to, to kill their own son for, for Him, for His glory, that He demands that of somebody? Because Abraham didn't know how it was going to go. Abraham thought he was really going to have to kill his son. You believe in a God like that? And then take it a step further, because we're going to get to the cross in a moment, because there's a lot of foreshadowing here to the cross of Christ. You say, you believe in a God who not only does he, did He ask Abraham to sacrifice His Son, 
You believe in a God who actually sacrificed His Son just to appease His own anger. That's like, and if you've never heard this phrase before, this is what a lot of people say, that's like cosmic child abuse. You believe in a violent, angry, spiteful God who would kill His own Son? And they use that as a rejection Ultimately, a rejection of truth, a rejection of Christ. But they use that as a rejection towards Christianity. I could never worship a God like that. That is just child abuse. But there's even some Christians who, they might try to allegorize this or say, well, you know, we don't, we don't know. if No, this is legitimately Abraham getting everything ready to go and kill Isaac. And briefly, because this isn't what the entire sermon is about, I don't want us to get hung up on this point, but this is a good place to remind ourselves, God is God. God can give life as He sees fit. God can take life as He sees fit. And whatever God requires of us is not beyond reason. Whatever God requires of us is not unreasonable. It's not untenable. Whatever God requires of us, He is worthy of what He has required. Whatever God asks of us, He is within His rights to ask of us. Because He is God. He has made us. He has given us the very life that we've been given. When it comes to our children, He has given us the children that we've been given. Ultimately, they are not our children. They are His. He has given them to us to nurture, to mother, and to father. But ultimately, all things in all of creation belong to Him. He is in full control. And there's a lot of Christians, professing Christians, that, that almost makes our stomach turn a little bit. We say, I love God and I love His Word and I love being a Christian, but I don't like talking about this aspect of God. That He can do whatever He wants, how He wants to do it at any given moment of time. Here's the thing. That's a part of being God. That's who He is. All of creation, all the universe, all things and all existence are dependent upon God. And when God decides this is going to happen or that is going to happen, or when God decides I'm going to bring about this certain end, God can use whatever means He ordains to bring about those ends. And He remains perfect and good and just. See, the issue is, we look at this sometimes through our human lenses and we say, well, if there was a father today that said that he was going to go sacrifice his son for God's glory, we would think that man was out of his mind and need to be put in an institution. And we start, we make ourselves the standard. And we say, we would never ask anybody to do that, so how dare God ask somebody to do that? Here's the thing, we're not God. We don't get to judge God through human standards. God has chosen to reveal Himself through creation and through His Word. And we should believe and think about God and we should understand God and comprehend God in the ways that He has revealed Himself. And we shouldn't shy away from things. We shouldn't 
cower in fear that, oh, we don't, we don't like talking about this aspect of God. And so to launch from that thought to the next, Abraham didn't know anything about what I'm about to tell you here. We have the benefit of having the entire Scriptures. And we can read an event like this and we can say, let me show you how this foreshadows the cross of Christ. Right? Abraham couldn't do that. It's not as if Abraham was going and saying, well, I'm just using my son as a picture of Christ. And uh, when we get up here, there's going to be a ram caught in the thickets. And, and I'm going to say, God is, is the one who will provide. And, and this is going to be a great example for believers who come later. They're going to say, oh, God was giving a picture of Jesus Christ bearing His own cross, being perfectly obedient to His Father, laying down His life for the sins of the people as an act of worship and as an offering. Oh, that's what we're doing here. No, Abraham didn't have that knowledge. But God did. And it's all part of God's overarching plan to unite all things in His Son, Jesus Christ, things in heaven and on earth, so that Christ will have preeminence in all things. So, what are the ways that this points to the cross? All Abraham knew was that God has asked me to sacrifice my son. We're going to go worship, but we're coming back. Abraham had it in his mind, some preconceived notion of some way, somehow, God's going to give me my son back. I'm legitimately going to take his life. But God's going to give him back. God is capable. And one brief note on that before I go to the next part. That right there shows... All of the doubt and the fear and the ups and downs of Abraham believing the promise of God that I will give you and Sarah a son. All of that doubt and questioning has dissipated at this point. Because now Abraham understands even if God takes his life, if God allows me to sacrifice him and his life is gone, God's going to bring him back to me. Because if God can take my barren wife who's past the age of childbearing and if God can take me a hundred years old and allow us to conceive, He can give me back my boy. Abraham's faith has increased. Do you see that? So Abraham wasn't aware of all of the foreshadowing that was taking place here. But it is important for us to see the foreshadowing taking place here. This was, this was Abraham's one and only son. The promised son. Kind of similar to the fact that there was a promised Messiah. But even, just go back to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman. You could say right there, well there's a promised child coming. Right there in Genesis 3. It's the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. There is a promised child that is going to come upon the scene at some point in history. So right there from that point, you say, well, Jesus is the promised one. He's the promised Messiah. He's the Savior. And Jesus is the one and only Son of God. You have a foreshadowing there. Isaac carried the wood up to the point of sacrifice. Christ carried His own cross. John 19, we, we read from that earlier. 
Abraham said, we, we will again come to you having, having, having confidence that even after this sacrifice, he and Isaac would return. After, after the death and burial of Jesus Christ, we know that he is risen. He returned. And we yet still, now that he has ascended, we await his return again. Christ legitimately laid down his life. Yet he is returning. He told Isaac when Isaac asked, where's the, where's the lamb? At some point it hit Isaac. He said, well, we've got the wood and we've got all the supplies, but we're missing something. Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham's response here, again, this shows faith. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. On that note, I do want to take our attention to a couple of different passages of Scripture. Starting in Isaiah 53, if you would turn there. God will provide the Lamb. You've heard me repeat over and over again that all of Scripture is one great big story of redemption. That Jesus Christ is all throughout the Old Testament, that the Gospel is ever-present in the Old Testament. But perhaps we've never seen it clearly, and we've never seen it on page after page after page of the Old Testament. And hopefully, just through 21 chapters of Genesis, I sincerely pray that all of us would be able to say, I see the Gospel and I see Jesus Christ more clearly in the first 21 chapters of Genesis than I've ever seen it before. And here in Genesis 22, when Abraham says, God will provide the Lamb, My mind went to two different places. Isaiah 53 being the first one. Verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people, and that He made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death, Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted for righteous, or be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It was the will of the Lord at this point to tell Abraham, go and sacrifice Isaac. And again, God knew what he had in store. God knew exactly how all of this was going to play out and the reason that he had for it all.
But it was the will of the God, it was the will of God to crush the Son. And again, there's certain people that take issue with that. But what we've got to understand is in the punishment of Jesus Christ, our iniquities were born, our iniquities were paid for, our grief, our sorrows were all handled. Our sin was atoned for at the cross through that punishment, through the wrath of God being poured out upon the Son, through the Son being crushed and bearing the weight of our iniquity. That is how we have eternal life. Now, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're having trouble finding it, it's between Genesis and Revelation. That was cruel. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 17. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you have not repented and and turned away from your sin, and if you have not turned away from your own efforts to make yourself right with God, or to get your life straight, we hear so many people say that, well, I've got some stuff in my life that I've got to straighten out. Then I'll start going to church or then I'll come to Jesus or then I've got some stuff that I've got to get straightened out. That is a sin in and of itself. If you have not repented and trusting in yourself, your own righteousness, your own good deeds, if you have not turned away from that and fully trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And the charge to you is to repent and to believe. The Son has been crushed. The sacrifice has been made. The work has been finished. There is but one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. And all who turn to Him will be saved. All who have faith in Him will be saved. And we're not, <clears throat> we're not just talking about faith that He was a real person. Yeah, there was somewhere along the line, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and He lived, and they crucified Him, and they never found His body. That's not what we're talking about. All who have placed their faith in Him, that He truly was the Son of God, that He really did come to save sinners, and that when He died upon the cross, He paid the price for the sins. He received the wrath towards sin... 
For all who believe. Only for those who believe. For those who do not believe are already condemned. Because they have not believed. Christ is the Lamb. The Lord will provide. The Lord has provided the Lamb. We cannot overcome our own sin. We, <clears throat> we cannot make ourselves right with God. Consider for a moment someone who, who does say, well, from this point forward, I'm going to start living right. Well, what does that do for the time that you weren't living right? That doesn't just erase it. Imagine a criminal standing in court. Guilty of murder. But he tells the judge, well, just last week, I was at the homeless shelter feeding the homeless. I turned over a new leaf. Yeah, I killed that guy, but I've been trying to live a good life ever since. What is the judge going to say? What does the fact that you fed the homeless have to do with the fact that you're a murderer? You've got to pay for your crimes that have been committed. If we were to stand before God and say, well, I tried to do good stuff. I tried to be I tried to make myself a different person. What does that have to do for the all of the lies that we've ever told? What does that have to do for all of the times that we've lusted after someone? What does that have to do with all the times that we've profaned the name of God and hated the things of God? It does, doesn't undo it. It's still there, and those sins must be paid for. It's foolishness for us to think, well, I'm just going to start being a better person. I'm going to make myself a Christian. I'm going to start going to church and I'm going to start doing what I need to do. It cannot save you. Our sins are so grievous and so heinous that the only thing that could atone for our sin was not just any death, but the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself. Fully fully man, yes, but fully God. His willing sacrifice. Him laying down His life on our behalf. The spilling of, of His perfect, spotless, sinless blood like that of a lamb. You say, what? How bad is sin really? Like when I tell that little white lie, when I... When I think that bad thought in my head, how bad is that really? It took the perfect, precious blood of Christ to atone for that sin. That's how heinous it is. That's how grotesque and disgusting and wicked sin is. That's how big of a deal sin is. God has provided a lamb. And that lamb, as we read was obedient like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. A part of this story that's fairly fascinating as well is the fact that Isaac, Isaac wasn't fighting against his dad. Isaac wasn't saying, well, dad, we got to get something. I mean, we don't need to go up this mountain right now. And let's just say perchance that Isaac connected the dots and figured out what was about to happen. We don't read where Isaac was like, Dad, no, I don't want to do this. No, hey, you can't. No, this is not happening. No, we got to find something else. It says that Abraham did what? <clears throat> he prepared the wood. 
And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. We don't read of a fight or a struggle or an argument. Isaac was bound and laid upon the altar. A willing participant. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ was, he humbled himself and took, took upon the form of a servant. He was obedient, obedient even to the death of the cross. Isaac was obedient to his father, laid upon the altar. And he was stopped. And he says, Now I know that you fear God. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now again, <clears throat> this is language for us to understand. And <clears throat> God does not learn things. God does not have to process information. This is not God saying, well, Abraham, I didn't really know your heart and I didn't really know you and I didn't really know if you trusted me up until now, but now I've got it all figured out. Okay? But it is a note, it is a mark of saying, this is a time where Abraham showed, he exemplified true faith in God. Obedience to what God had required of him. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And even in that, we have a picture of the gospel. Because we could say, who deserved to be on the cross? Who deserves to die for their sins? We do. We deserve to be the ones that are offered up as a, as a, as a burnt offering, bearing the weight of our own sin. But yet there's another who is put in our place. The Lord will provide. The angel of the Lord, this is verse 15 now. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So now we have the promises reconfirmed. The promises restated, reiterated to Abraham. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. But now there's something added to it. Now, these promises have already been given. In fact, these promises were ratified through a covenant that God sealed with Himself. But now, Abraham's obedience is in this pronouncement of the promise, the, re, the reiteration of this to Abraham. Because you have done this, because you have obeyed my voice, there will be blessing. There will be confirmation. So, in our lives, how should we view our obedience? Is there blessing for obedience to God? Is there blessing for obedience to His Word? Absolutely. Is the promise of salvation, is the promise of God's blessing upon His children dependent upon our obedience? No. 
Our salvation, the promise of God's blessing is dependent upon, you could say obedience, but not our obedience. You see, that Lamb that was provided, Christ, He was perfectly obedient to the Father. Christ fulfilled the law. Something we couldn't even begin to think about accomplishing. Most of us, if we're being honest, we would readily admit we can't even get past you shall not bear false witness. You can't lie. We'd say, yeah, I've told a lie. Okay, you've already blown it out of the water then. You cannot keep the law of God. Christ did. He upheld the law. He fulfilled the law. And because of Christ's obedience, because of Christ's perfect righteousness and His willing sacrifice, we receive the promises of God. We receive the blessing of God. We receive salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And as we live out that life, yes, there is blessing. There is abundance in obedience to the Lord. But our being made right with God, our right standing with God, is because of the obedience of another. Namely, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But here Abraham was obedient. And, and there's, uh, there's an acknowledgement of that. You have done this. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And even those promises right there ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because we're told later in Scripture from Paul in Galatians that the promised Son was ultimately Jesus Christ, not Isaac. It was Jesus Christ. And because of Christ's obedience, because of His perfect obedience, because of His following the Father's will and submitting to the Father's will, all of those that are in Christ, His offspring, He will see His offspring, they will be blessed. For us, if we consider our faith and we wish for our faith to be stronger or more consistent, I would say, as I said earlier, focus upon God and His faithfulness and His steadfast love. And consider that every time you have fallen short, every time that you have doubted or lacked, God still remained faithful. And let that be what bolsters your faith. You say, my faith isn't in myself. My faith is in Him. I will set my eyes and set my heart upon Him. In our obedience, if we say, well, I want to be in my obedience, I want to be like Abraham was right there. Okay, don't forget who we're reading about and who we're talking about. There was times where Abraham hesitated. He, he, he doubted. He feared. It's par for the course, to use a different analogy. There's going to be times in our lives where we lack in our obedience, where we lack in our faith. Do we want to be more obedient? Remind ourselves of who God is. Remind ourselves of our Lord and Savior. Of what sacrifice was made so that we could be the benefactor, so that we could receive eternal life. And we ask ourselves, 
Why would we not be obedient? Why would we not joyfully serve Him? We'd be a fool to turn against Him. I pray that our faith has been strengthened just today. I pray that we see the Gospel and see Christ more clearly today through this. That if there's any here today that you, again, that you have not repented of sin, including the sin of trusting in your own self-righteousness, repenting of the sin of fooling yourself and deceiving yourself and thinking, well, there was a time in my life where I made up my mind, I'm going to start living right and I'm going to start doing better. And ever since then I've been in church and ever since then I've been trying to do better. And that's what I'm trusting in. That sin, turn from it. Trust in Christ. And for those of us who know that we are saved, I pray that as we see the gospel and as we see Christ more clearly and as we've seen these deep connections from Genesis to 1 Peter and all throughout the Scriptures, that our hearts rejoice as we consider how great a salvation and as we consider the power and the sovereignty and the grace and the mercy and the justice and the wrath of God that work together to bring about the salvation of His people through pouring out His wrath upon the Son. That we rejoice in that, that we're humbled by that, and that we're eager to share the hope of salvation and to share the gospel with others. Let's close in a word of prayer.